Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. When Ronnie Biner, political scientist at Toronto University, learned that one of his grad students had become enamoured with the work of Alexander Dugin, a Russian neo-fascist, he was alarmed. He'd assumed that far-right ideology had been consigned to the dustbin of history following World War II. Biner then did some research into far-right ideology and the traction that it's gained. There was also Charlottesville in the US as well, where far-right activists clashed with those on the far left. Biner then wrote a book called Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the return of the far right. Being a political scientist, he's very much involved in philosophy and in the origin of ideas. So he was very interested to explore the role of Nietzsche and Heidegger in far right thought. It is my pleasure in this episode to speak with Ronnie Biner about his findings and his thoughts on the antecedents and the foundations of far right ideology, particularly as applied to the works of Friedrich Nietzsche. Ronnie Biner, thank you for speaking with me today on the Real Clear Values podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Ronnie, you wrote a book a few years ago, I think it was in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, called Dangerous Minds, and it's Nietzsche, Heidegger and the Return of the Far Right. What is the central argument of this book? Well... Uh, I uh, obviously wrote the book in the context of a Trumpian age uh, in which, uh, you know, we, we found ourselves and which hasn't yet terminated, I'm sorry to say. Uh, uh, I actually, the book started with my encountering a, a grad student who turned out to be very enamored of Alexander Dugan. And uh, Dugan, as people may or may not know, is a very prominent uh, Russian fascists uh, who for a while seem to have significant influence on Putin. It's never been totally clear how much, but mm. some sort of influence uh, and has had tremendous influence in the contemporary far right, which has been on the upswing. It's been growing uh, significantly in the last decade. And um, so I was, this was a kind of surprising <laughs> experience for me. I was, uh, not used to encountering uh, disciples or uh, uh, fascists or crypto disciples of crypto fascists uh, mm -hmm. in, in my graduate program. And I felt I needed to try and educate myself about the far right. And then a whole series of things happened. Brexit happened. Trump happened. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump brought Bannon into the West Wing of the White House and gave him a lot of power. And um, I, you know, I think... It was the kind of two things together that led me to write write the book. Uh, 
I probably wouldn't have written it if, if Trump had not been elected in 2016, but he was. And there was a tremendous uh, jubilation among uh, some very scary people on the far right, like Richard Spencer. And we came to, you know, the, the whole vocabulary of alt-right, it just didn't exist prior to 20. It was the, it was that election campaign and the famous speech by Hillary Clinton, I think in San Diego, where she actually spoke about the alt-right and how dangerous they were. And it actually seemed to give them a further boost by giving more publicity. And they were celebrating Trump's election as if they had won the election. And then, you know, Trump puts Bannon in the White House as if he was telling them, yeah, you know, this this one's for you. And, you know, so there was a lot of scary things happening. And those four years of Trump were, were very scary and continue to be scary. And I don't think they, the threats to liberal democracy have really abated yet. And I'm not sure they will. I mean, there's, a, I think, a broad crisis of liberal democracy, not just in the United States, when various parts of uh, of Europe, I mean, you know, a year from now, we could have a, a President Marine Le Pen in France. Uh, you know, the AFD in Germany, which is a very far right party, is running about even uh, with the Social Democrats. Um, you know, so, and Hungary, Orban, Putin, you know, you could go down the list, just a, a, a long list of very dire challenges to liberal democracy. And I'm a political theorist, you know, uh, you have to be attentive to what's going on in the world and try and respond to what you see as dangerous or threatening. And I wrote the book really as a kind of uh, a warning to my fellow citizens. Hey, look, you know, uh, we assume that the far right was in the rubbish bin of history. I mean, I think we had good reason to think that for about 70 years. And suddenly, you know, this ghost sprang sprung back to life. I mean, or crawled crawled mm. the, out, out of the grave in which we thought it was buried. And it's it's so well, it's one has to I think try and kind of respond to what's going on in the world. And so mm. I wrote the book. Um, I mean, drawing on things that I had studied and read about and thought about my whole life. Uh, uh, namely certain intellectuals uh, of, of, of the right, who, although they've been treated as if they were of the left, I think that's a big mistake, but it was just my way of um, tr trying to go at and raise issues and raise concerns and anxieties about what was happening in the world. And to that, I mean, it's not um, unique <laughs> Uh, uh, undertaking by me. I mean, a lot of people are trying in their different ways on the basis of their different competencies and different backgrounds and to, to open people's eyes to what was happening. You know, I think certainly starting at what I think was became much more evident in 2016, but probably there was clearly there was a lead up to it prior to 2016. Uh, that we now have to worry about uh, neo-fascism in, in a way that we didn't for about 70 years. So that's really what the book's about. And again, drawing upon and, and trying to put, put to use you know, theory, kinds of theory that I spent, spent my whole adult life thinking about and using that, you know, rooting it through, uh, through that uh, background 
these, these civic concerns, concerns I have as a citizen among citizens. And in that sense, the book's probably more, more addressed to fellow citizens, more of a citizen's book than my previous books, which are kind of pure theory, but obviously drawing on, uh, you know, my background, my training as a theorist, reading, you know, great thinkers of the Western tradition. And uh, so the book, you know, roots through that, but, but is addressed to the civic experience of our time, which, uh, alas, we're still living through. I mean, we haven't the other end, it would be nice to think, well, Trump got defeated and, and we just, liberal democracy just swings back to what it was 10 years ago. Well, I don't think that's happening. I don't think people expect it to happen. I think we're mm-hmm. still living through a, mo- a moment of, of dire threat and to be a very attentive as citizens to the kind of new world we're living in. I mean, mm-hmm. for to live in a world where you just didn't have to think about fascism or the far right, but that's not our world right now. And no one really expected it, just like no one expected the USSR to collapse. Well, no one expected neo-fascism to bounce back or make a comeback. But that's definitely the, the context in which I wrote the book. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of uh, tried to, you know, uh, I mean, it's a polemical book and, and try to craft it in a way that grabs people's attention and tries to... Uh, bring home to them the some of the civic perils we face. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, that's a very interesting response. So so you're as you say, you're you're doing your bit to respond to the challenges of the day and this this appeal and this resurgence of, of fascism in the modern era. I'm I'm interested now, Ronnie, to talk about responses to the book. Tell us about the very first review that was published about the book and and how that that spoke to your reasons for writing it and the intentions behind it and also your your view on the validity of the book itself yeah that was a real shocker so uh very soon after the book was published i think the book came out in uh march of 2018 so within a few weeks in april uh i got (laughs) i had shortly prior to that i i joined twitter and, uh, you know, this thing uh, popped into my Twitter feed uh, from uh, someone named uh, Greg Johnson. And uh, the banner in which he tweeted this to me was, you know, well, if Beaner wants a, a debate, intellectual debate with the alt-right, game on, you know, exclamation mark. <laughs> Up, it's, it's a book review. So Greg Johnson is uh, definitely a neo-fact. Uh, of a very scary variety. I mean, he's, you know, he's so, he's, he founded this uh, website and it's, it's more than a website. It's all kind of, as with many of these fascists, they build up whole, you know, publishing empires. So he publishes books, he translates, he has a whole um, uh, crew of fascists who write for him. And, you know, he has a lot of followers uh, who would know, uh, so his website's called Countercurrents. He's the uh, editor, and he uh, he he wrote a quite long five thousand word uh, review of my book and put it on his uh, website, and then <laughs> tweeted it to me. You know, throwing down the gauntlet, uh, and it's 
very intelligent. He's a very smart guy. He's a uh, uh, capable intellectual and he's extremely dangerous. I mean, who would, I would, prior to writing this book or prior to two or three years before that, I would not have dreamt that there were smart intellectuals out there who have a real uh, commitment uh, to the far right, to fascism. And mm. uh, this is fascism in a very literal sense. So on his website, he celebrates Hitler's birthday. So that's, mm. and, and uh, he's not just some kind of thug, he's, he's an intellectual. I mean, he has a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America. I found out later uh, his doctoral supervisor was actually an old friend of mine. So that's a shock. Mm, mm. Uh, and um, and uh, he, uh, and uh, you know, some of these people, uh, including him, have phenomenal amounts of energy. I mean, he just, mm. uh, he puts tremendous amounts of energy into trying to, uh, revitalize intellectually revitalize the far right and uh i had no awareness of this prior to what led me to writing the book i have a lot of awareness of it now uh it was a big shock when i got this and so first first sentence in fact six words into this five thousand uh word review of my book he identifies me i.e targets me as jewish Canadian Jewish political theorists to make sure that his, you know, his fan base know that, you know, we're dealing with the enemy here and uh, uh, ferociously anti-Semitic as uh, most of these fascists are. And uh, uh, so, yeah, this was a big shock. It, 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 you can see his intellectual ability in the review. I mean, it's a smart review. It's, uh, uh, it's interesting to read, um, but uh, he's evil. I mean, someone to, um, you know, he wrote a, a piece in his, uh, you know, in his or magazine or it's, it's on his website, uh, 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 s- suggesting that it would be wrong for white, uh, uh, white nationalists to throw Hitler under the bus because, uh, you know, Hitler was a loyal friend of uh, the white race. And uh, I mean, for an intellectual, someone who's, you know, has a PhD from a reputable university and, uh, you know, wrote his doctoral thesis on Immanuel Kant and but Mm -hmm. and then basically doing apologetics for Adolf Hitler and and have people follow him and have a, you know, so there's a constituency there. And uh, I was blind to it. And um, uh I guess I feel grateful to be aware of this because as a citizen, it's something you should uh, know about. And I mean, we've all become much more aware. Again, just the fact that there's a term alt-right, which previously didn't exist or which people had no awareness whatsoever. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton gave that speech for reasons parallel to my writing my book. I mean, her speech obviously gets a lot more attention than my little book, but, but similar intention there is like, well, people, we as citizens need to know about this. And uh, so it was a rude shock. Um, I mean, I guess I'm older older and wiser now, knowing that there are serious intellectuals, um, in some respects, people who are thoughtful, 
in, in, in the sense they've, they kind of thought hard, hard and deeply about important thinkers and have interesting things to say about them and are trying to turn them, turn that intellectual endeavor to extremely uh, scary and dangerous uh, political purposes. And uh, so in that sense, we're, we're, we're living in a different world. I mean, maybe that world was there all along and we just mm. look under that rock. But now I think it, it, it requires real, um, uh, uh, you know, one, one willfulness, <laughs> willful blindness to not know what's under that, under those rocks. I mean, we have mm. to, since we're obliged to lift up the rocks and look. And so I thought I've been trying to do, I mean, it started, uh, a couple of years before I published the book and I've been pursuing that, uh, you know, since then I've continued doing work on the far right and writing about the far right and trying to stay reasonably educated about it. And, um, more so than I ever would have in the past. And, you know, again, I wish the world, you know, didn't, didn't oblige that of us, but I, I think it certainly does that you're, you're not being a good citizen if you're not, attentive to all that no. but it was a you know rude wake up and i actually wrote a, a little uh, op-ed in the chronicle of higher education about how traumatizing it was to have the first review of your book uh be published by a nazi uh, on his nazi website and um alas that's what happened so i could never have imagined that you know i published the book that someone suggested to me well you know the far right are going to be so excited about this book that they're they're going to be the first ones to to get in with the reviews and uh, uh, you know in some ways it was the one of the most ambitious or one of the most ambitious uh, reviews of the book uh, but I can't say I feel flattered by that it's hmm. tells you that they're you know they're serious about their project and they put a lot of intellectual energy into this and they take it very seriously and if hmm. They find well. Here's a, a you know, a, a, a place where we can engage and 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 get put put in. You know, get, get have our say. They leap on it, and and he spends any time reviewing that book. And um, yeah, it's it's scary. So all all that's been very sobering for me. Absolutely. I can only imagine. I'm really interested in this, Ronnie, because a lot of times when people talk about things like fascism and, and racism, they talk about education and they say, well, these these people who are into this, they need educating and, and education is axiomatically the solution. But it, it seems to me that somebody who has been educated at PhD level in philosophy, and as you say, is very articulate and very intelligent, is not necessarily right. lacking in education per se, but this is a matter right. of values. So right. as, as you see, it, as you've dug into this area, what are the values that these people are striving for? What is it that they're driving towards in, in society? Well, I guess maybe we can now shift over to, you know, the, so the books primarily focused on Nietzsche and Heidegger, again, partly as an use or pretext for talking about the kind of broader civic phenomena, civic phenomena that I'm anxious about. But, you know, we can now, I, I guess, uh, talk a little about Nietzsche, for instance. So, um, you know, he's their guy. He, that, that what's fundamentally at stake here is, well, 
you know, the, 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 the weight or the importance put by a given society on a commitment to equality. And we, in some broad sense, live in a, in a social political world founded on the principle that all individuals matter, that their dignity matters, that the society should be as much as it can know society is going to be perfect in this respect, but it, 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 at least at the level of principles, if not in practice, but the level of principles that everybody's uh, interests and concerns should be factored in and people should be able to participate as citizens on a, you know, ideally on an equal basis. Well, a uh, big part of what defines fascism is they don't share those commitments. Uh, they don't believe in equality. They think equality is a misguided moral ideal that to found a, a society or culture or political culture or a civilization uh, on ideas of equality is a, a catastrophic mistake. And, and within the Western canon, uh, that argument, ha- I mean, uh, it obviously wasn't a, a, a pervasive commitment to equality, uh, you know, prior to the Enlightenment or prior to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, many thinkers within the canon, you know, the Greeks were not committed to e- equality in that sense. But our, uh, you know, the West uh, experienced a kind of uh, cultural revolution uh, Again, starting with the Reformation and then the Enlightenment built on that. And then with the French Revolution, it became entrenched as part of what we all take for granted. The the basic postulates or the basic, the overarching horizon within which all of us live as members of a kind of liberal, bourgeois, egalitarian civilization. Well, subsequent to that, and it broadly, you know, met with broad acceptance you know, even within the intellectual traditions of the West, subsequent to the French Revolution. So mm-hmm. Kant committed to French principles of French Revolution. Hegel was committed to the principles of French Revolution. Uh, well, Nietzsche wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thought it was an enormous wrong turn. There was a kind of fork in the road, and we went the wrong way. And and that it that it's impossible to found uh, a meaningful or culturally vibrant uh, uh, or existentially sustaining way of life on that on those postulates on those moral principles, and Nietzsche's project was to undo them and reverse them and correct the mistake and go back to that fork in the road and go the other way. Well, you know, kind of the Greg Johnsons of the world or the Richard Spencers of the world, they're in that fundamental sense, Nietzscheans. They, they just don't believe in equality. Uh, you know, Nietzsche's principle was nobility and, and, and noble societies that are top down and where, where, where there are people who are recognized as nobility and people are recognized as, as, as uh, lower creatures that those societies can actually generate, you know, um, meaningful horizons of life and, 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 and generate uh, real cultures and generate real uh, understandings of what it is to be human that are that raise people up to a higher level. And the Galilean civilizations, I mean, you know, Nietzsche fundamentally puts the blame here on Jude, Judeo-Christian religion. 
that our principles of equality obviously originate with biblical religion and that he, his main polemical target is Christianity because he blames Christianity for equality, liberalism, uh, uh, you know, and, and the, mm. the equality in general, that all those things are big mistakes and they all flow out of uh, uh, Christian morality. And so Christian, Christian morality has to be destroyed. I mean, that's why you often find with neo-fascists a kind of um, fetish of, I don't know, pay, re, neo-paganism, return to paganism as something mm. more noble, more life-affirming, more life-enhancing than anything that's likely to come out of Christianity uh, or, or biblical morality. And mm. so that's, the, you know, that's the big contest at the, at the level of principles. Do we mm. found our understanding of life and our view of life and the kind of societies we create on the idea that all individuals count, that all individuals have dignity, that we have to be sensitive to the dignity of different individuals? Or do we see that as kind of hollow and a kind of a big lie? And, uh, and uh, both the fascists are, I think, trying to put into practice uh, Nietzschean principles. Now, great irony, and I kind of talk about this in my book, and I think anyone who's aware of Nietzsche is, is not, you know, that will know this, that, that um, Nietzsche's kind of ball that the intellectual left or the academic left has, has picked up and run with as if Nietzsche belonged to them. Uh, hmm. That's a kind of a s- stunning irony of intellectual history of the last hundred years. I mean, I guess really since 1950 or so, people have tried to uh, cleanse Nietzsche or sanitize him of any whiff of, you know, proto-fascism, but there's the, the it's it's not just that there's little bits of proto-fascism here and there, but the 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 fun the the, the basic core of Nietzsche's thought is mm. is fascist in the sense that he wants a revol- revolution to erase the 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 the, the fundamental you know premises of uh, life in a, a liberal you know, egalitarian society that we take we otherwise take for granted um uh so um you know in, in that sense uh nietzsche nietzsche is the philosopher of 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 fascism and today neo-fascism and and again these, these neo-fascist intellectuals are are hyper aware of this i mean yeah. um they know that Nietzsche's their guy, and and uh, uh, you know the Nazis, for that matter, knew that. I mean, Hitler was very explicit that that you know Nietzsche was going to be for them what Karl Marx was for the Bolsheviks. You know, uh, he went out of his way to visit the Nietzsche archives uh, in Weimar and be warmly welcomed by Nietzsche's sister, and had you know official state photographs taken with a bust of Nietzsche to make the point that, well, you know, what Marx was is for them <laughs> uh, or what Jefferson is for the liberals, Nietzsche is, is for us um, because Christianity is seen as decadent. Christianity must be destroyed because of its egalitarianism and a 
uh, a ruthlessly uh, hierarchical society has to be put in its place. And that's, that's the project, I think, uh, all fascists and all fascists even right up to today uh, understand very clearly what Nietzsche's core project was, and they're trying to implement that core project. Mm-hmm. And they're very serious about it. And uh, we have to, I mean, again, it's, it's astonishing that anyone on the left could think that, that Nietzsche is not their enemy uh, mm-hmm. or he's a friend of theirs. Well, he's, he's, he's no friend of the left. And I mean, there's, there's no lack of clarity, in, you know, uh, unless you're sort of rewriting the pages as you read them. I mean, if you just look at what's on the page, it's it's blindingly clear what the project is or why, you know, why Christianity is the the, the, the central polemical target. I mean, Nietzsche's mm. very clear about that. Mm. It's, it's interesting you say that, Ronnie, because I, I always feel that there's, there's a bit of a paradox at play in relation to Nietzsche's criticisms of of Christianity, because when he declares the, the death of God in the parable of the madman, he he speaks about it in, in almost a lamentable way. This this idea of, of, mm-hmm. of, of borderless horizons that have been created by by us, you know, we in society, as, as he spoke of it contemporaneously, are these great murderers. And and he, he writes about it, he writes about it lamentably. And and some some commentators and philosophers, uh, academics such as R.J. Hollingdale, for example, have written how this created a, a sense of nihilism within Nietzsche himself, which he had to he had to then overcome. You know, this idea that that there is no God, that there is no organizing principle in the universe and that he, he overcame that. He surmounted that through ideas such as the Ubermensch and will to power. So it strikes me that the, there is a real a real paradox there. What, what, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that, that there is anything, that Nietzsche did see anything lamentable about the demise of, or the death of God, as he called it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, what, uh, I mean, I have my own way of developing this in the book, but what Nietzsche fundamentally cared about was culture, that life's meaningless unless somebody takes it upon themselves to create cultures. And, you know, Christianity did manage to do that. It gave people a sense of what, what, you know, what the meaning of the world was, what defined it, what its boundaries were. It gave them a cultural horizon, and it should be given credit for that. But uh, at the same time, and so, you know, when the foundations collapse and people feel like they're just kind of drifting in space and they, 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 there is no there are no authoritative authoritative standards no authoritative horizon yeah that's something to be lamented for sure mm. uh, but I think Nietzsche's view is that was inevitable I mean uh, if, if if you base a civilization on what Christianity based its civilization on which is the equal dignity of all individuals that we're all brothers that God cares equally about us that that uh, uh, that, you know, we have to secure that, that, that you know, in the, in the sight of God, everyone counts for the same. Well, I think Nietzsche's views, those, those are ultimately unsustainable ideas. Hmm. That will, if you think that everyone's equal, you just, uh, uh, you can't produce a culture. Uh, hmm. That, hmm. that uh, uh, it, it's kind of self, self-undermining that hmm. you ultimately produce is what he calls the culture of the last man where nobody believes anything 
people are just, they just care about, you know, the com- comfort and security and, you know, banalities of life and the things that are not capable, you know, creating a culture is a heroic undertaking, you know, uh, the real cultures are, you know, heroic or even, even though they, the, 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 you know, there's a kind of Homeric character, the Hebrew Bible, Nietzsche admired that. But, you know, mm-hmm. priests took over and Christianity it was in the kind of civilizational driver's seat. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it's, it sustained itself for a couple of millennia. But, but I think his view is ultimately it's only uh, uh, concertedly aristocratic cultures that will be true cultures. And a, a Christian culture uh, defined by ideas that everybody, you know, counts for, it counts equally. Everybody's, you know, that everybody's comfort uh, is, is uh, you know, um, a concern of the whole society. That these are ultimate, these are fundamentally decadent ideas and they will, the culture will undermine itself or run out of gas or, or burn itself out. And so in that sense, the death of God was, was was unavoidable and inevitable. You'd kind of mourn it in the sense of the horizons have collapsed. Hmm. But to rebuild those horizons, well, Nietzsche wants his, wants to rebuild them on the basis of you know life affirming principles and equality. Hmm. Of those. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that you know the things he looks at you Uber mentioned. Well, that's that's a uh, a root and branch negation of the idea of equal the equal dignity of all human beings right there. Because if you are positive Ubermenschen, well, you're simultaneously positing uh, Intermenschen. You know, they're, they're the higher beings and the lower beings. And the higher beings are the ones who take responsibility for defining cultural horizons. They're the creators of culture. They're the value uh, fabricators, value creators. And everyone else lives within the horizon of those Ubermenschen. Mm. And they well, everyone's equal. So there's no Ubermenschen. So there's no yeah. culture. So there's no one... There's no legislators of, of the, the authoritative horizons. That's the fundamental core of Nietzsche's thought, is yeah. that it's the people at the top, the elites, the geniuses, the greater men, the people who are sort of trans men, supermen, they will, they will provide us with our standards. And then everybody lives within those horizons and defers to them. And then you can have a real culture. So in that sense, you know, equality is 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 a uh, is the negation of culture. So so of course, you know, if we live in a post French Revolution world, where you know at the level of principle there really is no elite, there are no higher men, there are no superior human beings. It it will just implode. It will collapse in on itself. It might take a couple of centuries, and then if you want to rebuild, you have to rebuild on. You know, uh, a pre-French Revolution uh, basis, or 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 more fundamentally pre-Christian, you know, and hence, you know, the uh, the you know m- making the gestures to back towards paganism and whatever. Hmm. Uh, uh, so that's uh, yeah. There's up to a point that he he has a kind of. Uh, ambivalent stance towards the death of the death of God. Uh, I mean, there are things I guess that Nietzsche it, it, it admires about Christian civilization. He admires cathedrals, you know. Hmm. Uh, 
there's something that actually created that will stand for centuries. And, but that's his view is, you know, we're past all that. Now we, we look for the moment. We have a culture where people are just getting gratified moment to moment and they can't act forward to centuries. That's a test. You know, if you can't think of centuries, you're not going to produce a real civilization and liberalism uh, or liberal bourgeois culture or whatever you want to call it, will always fail that test. And, and so that's what, and it wasn't just Nietzsche, you know, so the, in Weimar Germany, you had a whole uh, cadre of intellectuals who believed what Nietzsche believed, that, 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 um, that, that liberalism was decadent, that Christianity was decadent, and, and uh, you had to create a more uh, aristocratic form of social life. And that uh, laid the seeds for, for you know, um, for Hitler, you know, about 10 years later. I mean, it was the, the groundwork was all, uh, uh, that, that was the, the work of, of, of the, you know, the 20s in, in Weimar Germany. And those people were powerfully inspired by Nietzsche. So there was a, a kind of generation of right-wing intellectuals in 1920s Germany, in Weimar Germany. And they were very much inspired precisely by these ideas of Nietzsche, about mm. the, the decadence of liberalism and the need for a kind of revolution. So it was called mm. conservative revolution. Ernst Jünger, Carl Schmitt, uh, Oswald Spengler, people like that. And, um, uh, you know, one could say that there were two revolutionary challenges put to kind of a liberal center, center uh, one from the left and one from the right. Well, Nietzsche was no less a revolutionary than Marx was, but it was a rebel mm. from the right, not from the left. And, uh, um, uh, and uh, you know, so in that sense, conservative revolution was the, ju just the right label for this movement that it was, which was very much of uh, Nietzschean inspiration. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that bit. You've mentioned Hitler a couple of times already. Let's talk about Nietzsche's predictions or prognostications for the 20th century. First of all, what were they? Because they strike many people as remarkably prescient. And what do you think the role of his work played in the coming about of those prognostications? Yeah, well, I regard them as incredibly prescient. I mean, he said that what the 20th century would see would be, you know, ideological wars the like of which the world had never seen. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, within a few decades, he died in 1900, you know, by the end of the 1930s. That's exactly what, you know, the world was turned upside down and Nietzsche said it would be. And for him, it, it was uh, uh, the result of a kind of vacuum of meaning. He, you know, his, the way he put it, uh, you know, there will be fight for the dominion of the world between the left and the right. That the, the center, you know, is, 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 is a vacuum, is a cultural vacuum, and people will fight to reassert their ideas of what, what makes for a meaningful world. And, and, and millions of people will die. And he said, no, you know, wars 
Wars the like of which had never been seen. The people, the numbers of people die would look unprecedented in human history. I mean, not that there haven't been, uh, you know, a lot of deaths in human history, but he said it would. They would kind of go up to a, a you know, notched up to a, a different level, and that was, uh, that was true. Hmm. Uh, you know, there our hope. Uh, my hope and the hope of many people was that in 1945. Uh, the 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 threat uh, to a, a, a sane and decent and humane world uh, posed posed by the far right had been um, uh, terminated and mm-hmm. hope was <laughs> permanently terminated. And not that seventy years later it would be uh, crawling back out of the grave. And uh, yeah. so you know there you see a lot in in the press and various op eds people suggesting that we're heading back into a Weimar moment or we're already in a Weimar moment, or that's what defines Trumpism is a kind of Weimar all over again. People have lost faith in liberal democracy, uh, you know, partisan polarization that is a kind of death knell to the liberal citizenship. And um, I mean, uh, heaven help us if that's true. Um, uh uh, you know that 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 um, what came out of Weimar was not happy for humanity or for anything, no. and it, it produced nothing other than than destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so let's hope this is not a Weimar moment, but the, the the warning signs are there, and one would think that some kind of historical recollection of 20th century fascism would be enough to um deter anyone from wanting to go back in that direction or anything mm. like that direction. but yeah um you know there's just kind of too 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 many perils in front of our eyes to, to mm. dismiss that and, uh, yeah let, let, let's talk about that a moment actually ron if 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 we may so the I'd like to kind of stick with Nietzsche in terms of the appeal of this idea you know you mentioned that that, that Nietzsche is the guy of the the far right. Let, let, let's think a bit about what his appeal actually is. I think there's something really interesting, and it's a very short sentence in, in your book. You talk about your own almost Nietzschean-like experience of stumbling across Thus Spoke Zarathustra in the stacks mm-hmm. at McGill. Tell, tell right. us a little bit about how you came across that book and what the appeal of Nietzsche's writing was to you in your particular context. Well, um... I think one needs to be honest that Nietzsche is an extremely powerful, and this goes for Martin Heidegger as well, who arguably is Nietzsche's most important philosophical heir, heir within that kind of stream of theory. Uh, Nietzsche's extremely powerful critic of liberal bourgeois society. And I mean, I think, as I kind of suggested a few minutes ago, and I kind of try and I emphasize this as much as I can. Uh, there uh, have been, in there were in, in, the, in the middle to late 19th century, two extremely powerful challenges to a kind of horizon of life we associate with a kind of egalitarian bourgeois liberalism. One is Karl Marx, and the other is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and they're both uh, extremely powerful. And 
you know, it's part of our responsibilities as thinking beings to not just kind of live unreflectively in the way of life that's established, but to consider the most uh, um, uh, far-reaching challenges to our way of life as uh, liberal Democrats or as, as, uh, you know, as, as citizens of a, a bourgeois culture. And, mm. and uh, you know, Marx on the left, Nietzsche on the right, they, they kind of really pose the most powerful challenges to that w- way of life. And um, I mean, in a sense, Nietzsche's are more radical because, you know, Marx is just kind of radicalizing the commitment uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, social equality that's already there. And, and that, you know, from his point of view, has not been, we haven't gone far enough in making good on that. But still, it's a kind of, you know, he thinks a, a revolution is necessary in order to realize our full humanity. Well, Nietzsche thinks we have to go in exactly the opposite direction, that, that, that any society founded on ideas of all individuals being equal, uh, that, that, that there is no full humanity there, that it's the, it's the negation of our full humanity. Full, full humanity requires that, there, you know, his, his terms, that there be a recognition of order of rank. And that there are people who are not equal. There are the higher beings and there are the lower beings. There are Ubermensch and there's Untermensch. And, and we need a revolution to secure the possibility of, 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 of a full humanity. Mm. Uh, full humanity requires aiming for what's above humanity. But if you're aiming above humanity, well, then the merely human starts looking subhuman. And then you get into very dangerous territory. And Nietzsche is aware of that. Mm. And he he embraces it without. So you know, uh, you know, basically Nietzsche saying, "Well, if you, I mean, this is his famous portrait of the last man. You know, you think what matters is living a kind of safe, secure, comfortable life, uh, largely revolving around material goods, and you know, just living comfortably." Well, that's not a life. There's that that that's in the, the opposite of a, a proper life. It, it's it's uh, uh, you know it's it, 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 that that human beings have to aim beyond that to to have a meaningful cultural existence, mm. and uh, and um, you know in important ways the, the way of life that we all live and that we share. Uh, is based on ideas that we want to all uh, live long lives and live comfortable lives, and uh, uh, and and Nietzsche just explodes it as meaningless. Uh, mm. And uh, so that's something we have to take seriously, at least intellectually. Um, uh, you know, in terms of what where it might lead us. Politically, I think we ha- we have to resist with all our powers, because we saw in the 20th century that uh, trying to over overturn a liberal social order and replace it with you know these ideas of uh, grandiose ideas of, of of grandeur and civilizational grandeur, which is what fascism was, um, is you know can can lead to a total negation of humanity. That's what it did. That was the story of the 20th century. I don't know. How someone could, you know, live in the 21st century and and not 
take that in and realize how dangerous it is. Um, but uh, intellectually, I think, you know, that's why Nietzsche belongs in the canon. I'm, I'm, some people might read my book and say, well, you want to throw Nietzsche out the window? Well, no, he's, he's, he's a legitimate part of the Western theory canon because we have to be reflective about what we are committed to as, as a civilization. And, and if Nietzsche challenges that, well, that's a Socratic contribution. And, uh, and uh, I mean, it's till Nietzsche came along, as I suggested earlier, almost universally accepted that, you know, the principles of the French Revolution are, are uh, you know, uh, permanent and definitive and uh, a great achievement of humanity. And it's not something we could even think of going back on. Uh, well, I mean, if you take two, uh, two great liberals of the uh, 19th century, uh, Hegel being one of them and Tocqueville being the other, well, they both say, you know, these principles are the final principles. There's not going to be a further stage of history where we then transcend the kind of, you know, liberal bourgeois understanding of rights and, and go back to fundamental ideas of inequality. That's that's a pipe dream, and nor would we want it. That that these are, you know, Foucault said this is this is a more just world. You know, we lose certain things. There's costs. There's trade-offs. You know, there's things you gain and there's things you lose. But we this is this is a kind of, um, uh, you know, that that for the sake of. Justice, we have to give up on beauty in certain respects, insofar as the nobility produces beauty. Mm. Uh, well, then Nietzsche comes along and says, well, no, no, not so fast. I mean, why should we assume that we couldn't undo this? Why couldn't we reverse the French Revolution? Why couldn't we go back to a, a society founded on, on, on ideas of hierarchy and nobility? So, I mean, that's a big challenge. I mean, that's, that's a kind of major contribution to the dialogue that defines Western theory. So, hmm. uh, you know, if it just, you just stopped with Hegel and Tocqueville, these questions would not even be raised. But if you read Nietzsche, you can't help thinking, well, you know, in, in, you, you know it, it, history isn't providential. You could, you could choose as a civilization to, to go in the other direction. And uh, alas, you know, more and, more and more people, I think, today are open to uh, having, you know, liberal principles trumped by non-liberal principles or illiberal principles. Mm. Um, I mean, intellectually, it's liberating, uh, but politically, I think it's it's absolutely perilous. And, uh, you know, so it, it's one sense in which I think, you know, our, our, our interests as thinking beings or reflective beings committed to the life of the mind are our life as civic beings committed to good citizens kind of pull, pull in di different directions. I think with respect to the life of the mind, our, 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 the dialogue that defines Western theory is expanded thanks to Nietzsche, but politically, I think he's toxic. And, you know, the, the way in which current contemporary intellectual, the far right embrace them, I think uh, does vindicate that. I mean, like, earlier, you know, I see, well, okay, Greg Johnson's uh, advertising himself as, as a faithful Nietzschean. Well, the, yeah, that's a, that is a vindication of my argument, mm. a vindication of why I wrote the book. Mm, interesting. So, so I, I'm interested in kind of digging into the, the appeal of Nietzsche, because of course, 
you mentioned Greg Johnson, who is a self-proclaimed uh, Nazi, if that's if that's accurate, or self-proclaimed fascist, shall we say? I'm not sure um, he calls himself a Nazi, but he, he, he's definitely celebrating a, his, Hitler's birthday, for example. That, that's celebrating um, Hitler's birthday. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but and, um, and but, he, yeah. Right. So, sorry, Ronnie. Just just on this point, I'm um, I'm really interested because. There, there are so many people like Greg Johnson who who lay claim to being some sort of uh, Nietzschean, maybe not Nietzschean per se, but they're very strongly influenced by Nietzsche, and and that includes that includes Foucault. And I know you write about Foucault in in the book as well. And and of course, Foucault is not Nietzsche, and you 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 make that very clear as well. Foucault's appeal, sorry, Nietzsche's appeal to Foucault, of course, is is on the basis of power, and Foucault's real interest in in power and knowledge and and things along those so he's kind of on a different track to to what the far right are in relation to Nietzsche which speaks to the protean nature of what Nietzsche's writing about but what I'm really interested in is how Nietzsche wasn't that to, to my understanding Nietzsche's writing wasn't that popular when he was alive so so contemporaneously he wasn't that popular as a writer when he was alive so, so these ideas that the far right and others have, have seized on and, and run with and how the alt-right have made him their guy, they've, in some respects, they've laid dormant. Um, what is it then about this, this society that we live in, this bourgeois liberal democratic society, which has created the fertile ground for these ideas to be seized upon by the far right? Yeah, I mean that's uh, a uh, that's a tough question. I mean, um, you know, I think we have to continue to engage in the kind of self-reflection that thinks tries to identify possible, uh, I don't know, shortcomings and meaningfulness of uh, of a modern democratic way of life. And you know, in that sense, maybe Nietzsche can be helpful. Uh, Mm. Uh, and I, I don't think there are any e easy, easy answers to that. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in terms of his reception during his life, I mean, he was very frustrated by it. He was very resentful and he was trying to, you know, shout from the rooftops and no one was listening, but he predicted that, uh, you know, within decades or certainly within centuries, people would very, would be listening and that he would, uh, uh, he would be a dominant voice uh, in the century to come. And indeed he was. And uh, uh, strangely enough, he was dominant voice on the right and he was also a dominant voice on the left. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> left Nietzscheanism, whether in Foucault or Derrida or, or in others, uh, has been a very important uh, movement within uh Western culture and the Western, uh, you know, academic world. Uh, it's very paradoxical. I think Nietzsche himself would be aghast at it and uh, not something he would have welcomed. He was trying to speak to, you know, the Oswald Spenglers of the world and not the Michel Foucaults of the world, but he spoke to both of them. And uh, it's interesting. I'm not sure it's fully understandable. Uh, and and I think it's a gigantic uh, mistake. I mean, I think left Nietzscheanism uh, has, has kind of a misguided enterprise right from the start and continues to be a misguided enterprise. And people should 
should have their eyes open to how, how, how deeply intentioned it is with Nietzsche's own basic purposes as a thinker. And, and, uh, and he wasn't just a thinker. There was a, pr- a project here, uh, a, a hmm. positive political project to, to uh, destroy the legacy of the French Revolution and start over again. And I think anyone who uh, who doesn't see that reading Nietzsche is kind of missing what the the core is. I mean, maybe they're seeing lots of trees, they're not seeing the forest. Um, and so I think uh, you know Nietzsche left Nietzscheanism really needs to look in the mirror and rethink what, who, you know what they think they're doing or what they think they're getting from from Nietzsche. Uh, I you know big problem with I mean. Part, part of the story here is Nietzsche is just such a powerful writer. I mean, he just had a kind of literary virtuosity and he knew he did. And it, even if he didn't reach readers when he was writing these books, he knew that, it, you know, ultimately he would prevail because people would be seduced by his books. And they were. Mm. Uh, big problem is that, you know, people read Nietzsche and they think, well, Nietzsche is speaking to me. Nietzsche cares about me. Nietzsche is talking about individuals creating their values. He's talking about me. Well, no, he isn't. <laughs> uh, he's talking about uh, the superior man. He's not talking about every man or, or you know, undergrads taking uh, philosophy courses at university. He's talking about people on his level, uh, uh, you know, free spirits or potential ubermensch. Mm. And I think it's a, a, a gigantic mistake to read Nietzsche thinking Nietzsche is trying to speak to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, wants to create a new elite and speak to them. I don't think he ever, I mean, I think he believed that he would have tremendous cultural sway because of the superior human beings who would be reading his books, not, you know, uh, you know, not, not for him to be read by countless numbers of people in a mass society. I don't, that, that, that's in deep tension with what is the project was supposed to be. The project was supposed to, give further encouragement to individualism and equality, but to negate those things in the interest yeah. of, uh, in, in the interest of, of reestablishing a much more hierarchical, hierarchical society. I mean, it's a very important line in will to power where Nietzsche says, and this I think goes to the, the core of his thought that he says, my, my philosophy uh, aims at rank order. It doesn't aim at an individualistic morality. I mean, that hits the, you know, it's the bullseye, really, um, that it's all about hierarchy. It's not about cultivating, you know, individuals cultivating their own, you know, uh, their own individual visions of life. Uh, he doesn't care about that. He thinks it drains meaning. It doesn't create meaning. Meaning is created by people legislating values from the top. It has to be top down. People hire people, legislate for people lower down. We don't all just legislate for ourselves. So that it, that's just at, at level principles, flatly contradictory of any kind of egalitarianism. And, and equality is what defines the left. Without equality, there is no left. There is no the left make, makes no sense without a commitment to equality. That's that's the core of the left. So if if you are uh, trying to reject Rune Branch, any ideas of equality, you can't have anything to contribute to the left. You're, the left is your enemy. And, mm-hmm. and 
it's just astonishing to me that, uh, you know, Foucault or other left Nietzschean intellectuals can read him and think he's going to be helpful to them. I mean, it's also, I think, arguably that this kind of Nietzscheanism is just uh, problematic for the left anyway, you know, even, even apart from Nietzsche's own. Uh, you know, do we really want to base our ideas of left uh, on, on, on just power and nothing other than power to try and debunk or delegitimize ideas of justice, which Foucault does, I mean, very explicitly, you know, it's mm. all about power and, and there's no getting around that. And anyone mm. who thinks otherwise is a fool. I mean, um, you know, leaving Nietzsche aside, I think, uh, you know, Foucault is a very problematic source for the contemporary left. And I think it's unfortunate that he's had as much influence as he's had. And his Nietzscheanism, I think, is just a symptom of that. So with all this in mind, in terms of the book that you've written on Nietzschean philosophy, the influence of Nietzschean philosophy on the far right and the pernicious effects of it and the pernicious influence of it, how do you think, I mean, what, what's your view on the introduction of Nietzschean philosophy into the public domain by popular public intellectuals such as Jordan Peterson and others. Yeah, I'm. You know, first of all, I think we have to be careful to, you know, not in, inflate intellectuals to the point where you know politics is only about intellectuals. So I suppose I was able to. You know, I write this book and I'm able to persuade every intellectual who might otherwise be influenced by or seduced by Nietzsche that, you know, Nietzsche's dangerous. And so we don't have to worry about intellectuals anymore. Well, then there's still citizens. I mean, you know, if citizens vote for an Orban or they vote for uh, uh, Donald Trump or they vote for a Tucker or Carlson, we're still in a lot of trouble. I mean, the, 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 the you know, the front lines with respect to uh, repelling uh, the threats to liberal democracy are fundamentally those of citizens. I mean, of, of people that, uh, and, and, you know, your average citizen is not going to read Nietzsche or Foucault or, you know, Carl Schmidt or whoever. They're, you know, they live their lives and they, they, they hopefully participate in, in, in uh, civic life and hopefully are, um, um, uh, concerned about living a good, decent, civic, uh, you know, humane uh, for participating in a humane form of civic life, and and uh, uh, so I, you know, there's you know the 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 debates that go on within the intellectual sphere are one thing, and those that go on in the civic sphere, now they overlap, and so it's not an accident that uh, that uh, people of the right or the far right who want to pursue a certain kind of politics, they do lots of kind of intellectual groundwork. And so, you know, Greg Johnson starts his, you know, his, his, uh, his website to try and attract intellectual adherence and then tries to build on that and then turn it into a political movement. So uh, it's not the case that things that go on in the intellectual sphere are irrelevant to or disconnected from civic life intellectuals there are such things public intellectuals and hopefully you know they have uh, good good you know good effects on civic life rather than bad effects and insofar as they're having bad effects you try and find remedies for that 
and, and make correct course corrections within the intellectual sphere. And hopefully that is to the good of civic life. But, but you know, the, 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 the struggles that are going on uh, are not, I know, and you could say the same thing about Weimar Germany. So, so there, you know, there was a kind of intellectual track that uh, fed into what happened politically in the 30s. And so, you know, the, the kind of the Nietzscheanism of the conservative revolution people uh, did have effects on the political life of Germany and very bad effects. So, you know, one tries to contribute in the intellectual sphere in the hope that at least indirectly it's contributing to better rather than worse politics. But ultimately, you know, whether liberal democracy remains healthy or whether it becomes completely pathologized and, and, and collapses, which is still, uh, alas, a, a possibility, that will fundamentally be determined not by intellectuals or not by people who read the kinds of books I read, but they'll be, be determined by, uh, by citizens, you know, watching Fox News and they think, you know, uh, liberalism is worthless and, uh, and uh, they have ideas about, I don't know, uh, white grievance or whatever and, and vote for very liberal uh, kinds of politicians. Well, um, you know, we can't fix all that simply by writing books by intellectuals written to other intellectuals. Hmm. Uh, you know, the real, the real sight of whether liberal democracy has a future will be within the civic sphere. Um, well, you know, as an intellectual, so you, you contribute what you can and you try and if you think that, uh, uh, you, you know, many of your fellow intellectuals are not being helpful here or don't have their eyes open to the right kinds of uh, dangers, then you, 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 you try and, you know, make things better with respect to that and you do it with the resources you have as an intellectual. But, but ultimately, these, these are political, you know, and, and the, the majority of people involved in political life are, are not intellectuals, maybe have some, you know, tangential awareness of what's going on in the intellectual sphere. But I don't think the problem, the, the fix is solely in the domain of intellectuals debating with other intellectuals. Hmm, hmm. Interesting. So, so to put you on the spot in a nutshell, then, Ronnie, what is the solution to the appeal of, of Nietzschean philosophy and civic life? Um, well, uh, you know, it's not something, not a solution. It's not a solution you can just whip out of your back pocket. And, you know, it would be folly to think that, you know, I can just give you some formula or, you know, that there's just, um, some, some magic bullet that's going to fix all that might be wrong with our contemporary politics. Uh, you know, I think ultimately what we have to rely on is uh, citizens having a commitment to uh, a liberal democracy who are reflective and who understand that, uh, you know, being thinking citizens is what it is, what is required in order to have a liberal, liberal democracy at all. Uh, the, the problem, I mean, Canada's a, 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 a kind of oasis of relative sanity relative to the, the 
situation in other liberal democracies by look at south of the border and um you know what one sees is just kind of blind ideology and uh people having no commitment to liberal democracy really uh and happy to see it thrashed you know trashed and uh you know seeing their their capital uh invaded on january 6th and their and their representatives being uh, physically threatened and people just shrug. And, and one of the two major political parties in the country uh, not even wanting to do an inquiry about it. Uh, well, you know, this is, this, this is a, a democracy that is in, in appallingly bad shape. And, and I think people have to recommit themselves to a, a reflective citizenship. That, that, uh, and, and and honest deliberation and not just kind of blind partisanship and uh you know so again i think i'm just in some respects repeating that 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 the solutions it, it, it's not really for intellectuals to just you know disperse uh to dispense uh remedies i mean i don't think things work in that way in the political life the, mm -hmm. the solutions have to be imminent to political life People have to believe in citizenship. People have to want to be good and better citizens to enhance their citizenship and put their energies into making their society a better society. And if people don't have that commitment, nothing that, you know, uh, no solution dispensed by an, uh, an, an academic or a theorist or an intellectual is going to take you very far. Hmm. Uh, I think the, for the fundamental solutions have to come from within civic life and within people's uh, commitment to citizenship, if they have such a commitment. Uh, I look at the United States, I look at other countries uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere, and that, that commitment just seems severely attenuated. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fend off pessimism. I've always tried to be a, a hopeful intellectual and a hopeful citizen, but I'm not feeling super hopeful right now. I mean, I'm I'm glad that Trump's been thrust out of power, but uh, Trumpism is not dead, uh, and 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 uh, and it, and it's not dead as a symptom of of grave threats to other liberal democracies. So, you know, I think I'm I would put much more emphasis on on the on the the diag diagnoses and the, and the anxieties rather than on the remedies. Uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I pray that, that people kind of wake up and see that they're going to lose something very valuable if they lose the liberal democracies they have, but uh, it's happened before. And uh, we, I think we all have to hope we're, 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 as I said before, we're not living through another Weimar moment, but it can't be ruled out right now. Ronnie Biner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organisation, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfilment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships, 
www.tominglish.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English, and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.